according to the American Psychological Association, eight out of 10 of us expect a significant rise in stress during the holidays. Seven out of 10 of, uh, of us say that we are stressed about a lack of time, the same about money. Half of us are stressed about giving gifts. And 45% of Americans profess to wishing we could skip Christmas altogether. I am not in that camp. 45%. Christmas is brilliant. The actual day of Christmas and the Twinkie lights and the carol singing, all that stuff. Christmas day is brilliant. And I am not unaware of the amazing, amazing privilege and blessing that I have to have three healthy kids whose joy is just infectious with the early morning and the giggling and the presents all day and all that stuff. And the foods on our plate and the slime kits and the slime everywhere. I love the feasting. I love the games. I love the lazy reflective days. Actually, I love these the best. The lazy reflective days afterwards when you don't have to get dressed and you just get to sit around and watching non-stop Star Wars. We, it's, it's the season of non-stop Star Wars in our house. I don't know about yours. And none of that passes me by, and I love it. It's just all of this bit. All the run-up, all the extra stuff, all the lists and the shopping and the prepping and the packing and the wrapping and the extra events that you don't need and the end-of-year deadlines. All on top of the normal pressures of normal life. And I know I'm not alone in this. As a working mum, I've seen enough of the in my head, uh, me in my head versus me in reality memes, the Insta mum brigade. Uh, you didn't ask, but me in my head is a sleek combination of Audrey Hepburn, Mary Berry, um, probably a bit of Eliza Schlesinger, just for the, like, the weird humour in the faces and just always having a quick reply, quick wit. Um, definitely some Serena Williams just for the like, calm, gracious knowledge of her own strength, while cutting through the unending noise about gender inequality with her beautifully toned arms. <laughs> also for the tennis. Very good at tennis. Aren't I, hun? No. <laughs> On Ed's list, it's been 14 years, I will get over it. On Ed's list of what he wanted in a wife was a tennis partner. Never make a list. <laughs> Me in reality, however, haven't started shopping, haven't even thought about Christmas cards, and I know, I know it's too late now. Um, this is the 14th year in a row, so failing to do Christmas cards. I'm constantly late. I'm constantly trying to find a pair of socks for a child. Um, I'm phlegmy. I'm quite grumpy all the time. And we are all, not just me, we are all one infected elevator bu button away from another round of norovirus. And I'm brewing it all up. All my worries, everyone else's, feel free to give me yours. I'll take them all in my own little cauldron of unmediated anxiety for most of the month of December. Uh, Deborah Kisson, who is the co-chair of the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. I love that name. You they might want to add anti or like, you know, campaigning against. Co-chair of the Anxiety and Depression Association of America says that this is all down to the pressure the expectation that this year we're supposed to be joyful and together and exchanging these wonderful symbols of our love together. At any time, she says, that we set ourselves up for, with high expectations collectively, it has this effect on us. I just can't help thinking, though, that we're doing Christmas at the wrong time of year, which is actually a thing. 
There are reasonably compelling arguments to say that Jesus was not born in the winter at all. And I won't go into much of the detail, but it's to do with the fact that the shepherds wouldn't have had their fields out at night during the colder months. And also because of the census that Mary and Joseph were traveling for, um, the Roman Empire would almost certainly have done that when they were traveling anyway. So it probably would have been during Passover or the Feast of the Tabernacle, which is in spring or fall, not winter. Uh, the early Christians didn't celebrate his birth at all, actually. It didn't become a thing until the third century, as I'm sure you know, when Constantine adopted Christianity into the Roman Empire. And he wanted to disestablish the existing pagan festivals. Christmas was put in place, actually, of a celebration of the winter solstice, which was followed by a festival called Saturnalia, uh, during which people feasted and exchanged gifts. So can we then be real about Christmas for a moment, about what it is and what it is not, about this manger scene. I've got a couple of manger scenes. This snowy manger scene with lambs and kings and immediately postnatal Mary sitting on a stool or kneeling, and I'll tell you, I've given birth naturally three times. You're not gonna sit on a stool and you're not gonna kneel for any time. <laughs> it wasn't winter. It was very likely not a stable. It was much more likely a cave. So the innkeeper wouldn't have been an innkeeper. He was probably a shepherd. And as Al mentioned last week, shepherds weren't these sort of nicely bearded country folk. They were criminals. They were untouchables. They were unclean. And then the kings, ha, no credible historian think that three wise men or kings went to the stable or cave at all. They probably visited Jesus about two years later. And they weren't kings. We started calling them kings because we were deeply uncomfortable with what they actually were. The Magi, magicians, probably from Persia, followers of a teacher and a prophet named Zoroaster, probably, astrologers, dabbling in a spot of demonology, you know, the occult. First witnesses, not exactly the stuff that we tend to feature in the pageants. The Magi were usually um, leading figures in religious courts, so they weren't nobodies like the shepherds or the parents, but they certainly weren't the right somebodies. Uh, Matthew, who is the only gospel writer that features the Magi in, the, in his account, uh, was writing to a Jewish audience, the Jewish audience who had long awaited this heir to their throne. And so what Matthew was keen to point out with, uh, with them, including the Magi, is that this news has spread beyond the Jewish people. These Gentile magicians whoever they were, believed whatever they'd seen. They believed it enough to follow a star to the Jewish people and to their God. And when they got there, they bowed down and they worshipped him. But not with a conquering fanfare. When the time has come, when God sends this long-awaited saviour for all of the world, he doesn't send it to the big and the bold, the upright, the righteous, and the acceptable. He tells the toothless shepherds, and the mysterious, certainly not kosher, Eastern magicians. And he comes as a baby to peasants, for the brokenhearted, for the hungry for justice, and the meek. This is his way of being a king. The Christmas story was never about the birth of a new religion, the start of a new holiday. It's about the people Oh, you just got to that one. Yeah, I thought that one was pretty special. <laughs> <And> my favourite. <laughs> the, 
the Christmas story is about the people who believe that they were witnessing the one true God revealing a whole new era, a whole new everything for everyone, just like it had been foretold millennia beforehand. Jesus' life and death to them is nothing like the way it's taught to us. It isn't just about how to be saved, how to live better lives, how to improve our lot in life, like we so often reduce it to. It's a proclamation of something that has been done to change the world forever, the thing that I, and I know a lot of you, celebrate every single day. But there's nothing neat or picture perfect about this story. But it's this story that runs all the way through the four accounts of his birth, life, and death. And we're going to look at a well-known bit in Luke today. And I suppose now you can know that my, my processing of my un-Advent feelings is complete. Thank you for your time. Who needs therapy? Um, I should tell you that the point of, of all of that was to encourage us to just strip away um, all of this culturally created Christ Christmas nonsense that I think sometimes um, can interfere with us actually engaging in a meaningful way. I don't mean this like in a reason for the season-y way. I mean the way the season has been told to us by the reason-y people has sometimes been the wrong story. So I'm in Luke chapter 1. Um, Zechariah has just been visited by the angel Gabriel in the temple and told that his wife, who has her whole life been unable to get pregnant, is going to have a son. From verse 13. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are going to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord, their God. And then uh, Zechariah questions the plausibility of this prediction, given their age, um, at which point he is struck dumb for the duration of Elizabeth's pregnancy. But he does manage to communicate it somehow to her, who replies in verse 25, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Because in those days, not being able to have children as a woman was an enormous source of social shame. And then Mary, um, very likely Elizabeth's younger cousin, gets her in, uh, Gabriel visit. From verse 28, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And then he tells her that Elizabeth is also pregnant. Verse 37, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So immediately she leaves to travel to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who's probably a couple of days travel away. Verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. For why am I so favored that the mother of the Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things in me. Holy is his name. 
His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This song of Mary's is the first of four songs embedded within the first two chapters of Luke. All four are exclamations of praise in response to the good news that individuals are hearing, the long-awaited Messiah. They all have a Latin name. This one's called the Magnificat. And they all show a rich and deep engagement with the Jewish scriptures. It's not actually completely clear, but much debated, whether the author Luke himself was a Hellenized Jew or a Gentile Christian who just knew a whole lot about the Jewish faith. We do know that he was a friend and follower of the Apostle Paul, that he was a physician, that he probably wrote this around um, 50 AD, 55, um, and that he was writing this account for a man named Theophilus, probably, um, he was probably a government official or some um, wealthy, influential citizen, and he was almost certainly Luke's patron in his endeavour to record this detailed account and um, the Book of Acts um, as a history and theology of the apostolic age. Uh, Luke, from start to finish, is very, very concerned with inclusion. He's, it's a big theme all the way through it that he's bringing the outsider in, he's lifting up the downtrodden, and he's very, very um, consistent in that message. Mary's song, the Magnificat, is in fact the longest passage of the Bible spoken by a woman. And this is one of the things that jumped out at me this week. It's pretty focused on the juxtaposition of these two um, visitations and how they're next to each other and the similarities and difference between them with the news of Mary's um, visit from Gabriel and Zacharias in the passage before. Um, one thing that really hit me was that Mary's song is recorded, Mary's song being the longest passage of women speaking in the whole of Scripture, um, is recorded during the per period when Zechariah is silent. The man, the priest, the one with the education and the voice, figuratively speaking anyway. And this scene of them greeting each other, like between them there must have been such excitement and such joy, but just such fear and trepidation, terror probably actually for Mary, of the totally unknown what was going to happen to her. But then, as it says, the spirit falling on them both before we even get to the contents of her song. This is revolutionary stuff. A woman's voice. Women together experiencing the spirit before that's even a thing. The description of the babies in their wombs is written to parallel the Genesis 25 account of Jacob and Esau struggling for power in, the, in the, their mother's womb. But in massive contrast here, um, John accepts Jesus' identity. John accepts his call to pave the way for him. John obviously gets it. But so too do these two. These women holding each other and championing each other as role bringers of this new day, this new kingdom. This moment is huge. And they're not by any means experiencing the same thing. They're not playing the same role in the story. One is older, and she's being rescued from her childless shame. One is very, very young, facing a total unknown. Is Joseph still going to marry her? Are her family going to shun her? Is she going to have to do all of this by herself? Is she going to be destitute as a result of this calling? She has no idea yet. 
They're in very, very different circumstances. But they're together in having parts to play in this new incredible thing, in experiencing their own miracles. Togetherness in whatever we're going through is what this is supposed to be about. We were never called to do it alone. I um, listened to a podcast this week about limbic resonance, which is a relatively new field of neurobiology, um, but it's a kind of a growing understanding of how our brains mirror each other and actually feel things together, all in the interchange of a human looking at another human. And a lot of it isn't verbal. Our brains just connect and work together when we feel things in each other's presence, like a symphony, a mutual exchange, and internal adaptation happens as we attune to each other's states. Have you ever grieved or been very, very angry or been sick and broken and just had someone be with you, not tell you it's going to be okay or explain another side of it or try to distract you or offer you a solution? Ed never offers me solutions. but just be with you, to let you vent or sob, to sob with you? Or have you ever tried to celebrate something, have amazing, exciting news and just sit with it all by yourself? We are made to share the feelings that we have. This is how our brains are completely, utterly, unthinkably amazing brains were made to work. I love it when the science catches up with the spiritual truths that have shaped the kingdom for millennia. And we talk about science versus religion, science versus spirituality all the time, but they're the same thing, always. Feeling with each other. I actually think this is the gold dust. This is the highest order of relationship, and it is what we are called to. It's what Jesus models for us. Over and over and over again, he didn't need to weep, um, to rage with Martha and Mary. You know, when Lazarus has died and he goes there and he wept, but actually says he raged. He didn't need to do that. He, was, he knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the death, from the dead. But he was feeling with them. It's literally what compassion is, suffering with. He was moved with compassion. We hear it over and over and over again um, of Jesus in Matthew and Mark. Charles Spurgeon described it as, uh, the word for compassion is expressive of the most deepest emotion, a striving of the bowels, a yearning of the innermost nature. Jesus feels our pain with us. It's why him being born and living a fully human life was so, so important to what he came to do. He experienced all of it. And we're called to pursue the same thing in relationships together. Mary and Elizabeth, though separate in their cause and experience, were together in this for three whole months. And I can't help but think how vital that must have been for both of them and what was to come. So back to the song, though. Um, Christian religion paints Mary in a certain light, doesn't it? It's this sort of meek little thing, this poor virgin girl, so gentle, so tame, so sweet. In fact, her voice has almost been silenced completely. But she's actually freaking badass. 
May it be unto you as you have said, which is another translation that I just prefer. May it be unto me as you have said. This isn't like weak, submissive deference. The balls that it must have taken to say yes to that. The mighty courage that it takes. Yes, if this is how you say it's going to happen, yes, I am your servant. And she's described as favoured, thoughtful, obedient, believing, worshipful, and a faithful follower of the law throughout the first couple of chapters of Luke. But this is not his point. Luke wants us to be inspired by these things. We're supposed to identify with her, not idolise her. May it be unto me as you have said. It's like the holy grail with God. Letting him be in the driving seat, submitting to his plan. And then she sings this song in the tones of the prophetic women of the Old Testament, Deborah, Miriam, and Hannah, about scattering the proud and lifting up the humble and sending the self-important away and filling the hungry with good things. This is the gospel before the gospel and is absolutely in step with what Jesus is coming to do, a fierce shout of triumph before he is much more than a cluster of cells in her tummy. And it's bold and it's got a clap and a swing and a stamp of her foot. It's not meek. It's not apologetic. It's a revolution. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called this the most revolutionary hymn ever sung. None of the sweet, sugary, or childish tones of our favorite carols, but a hard, strong, uncompromising song of bringing down rulers from their thrones and humbling the lords of this world, of God's power and the powerlessness of men. The Archbishop of Canterbury during World War II warned his missionaries and clergymen going to India never to read the Magnificat in public, lest the poor and downtrodden there would seize upon it and liberate themselves from their servitude. Such was its revolutionary language, standing at total odds with the Indian caste system, or presumably the hierarchical power system on which British colonization of that region entailed. The head of the Church of England said that my mind actually boggles Leave that one out. Imagine. This song is not just Mary's take. It's not just good news to the Jewish people. This song is the heart of the gospel. Good news to the poor is like the gospel of Luke's unofficial subtitle. Jesus sees and feeds and goes to the poor over and over again. He loves the lost, the forgotten, the insignificant and the outcasts, the weak and the broken. Where men look with indifference or superiority, he looks with burning love. This is not an optional add-on. This is the rhythm of the kingdom. The Magnificat is the precursor, the declaration of revolution. It's not an adjustment, but it's an establishment of something else entirely. And it's a revolution that we're supposed to live by. A revolution that says, you first. Where all things, even the most unbelievably painful things, are worked together for the good of those who love him. Where mourning is turned to dancing, years eaten by locusts will be repaid. Where the last will be first. Where our worth is in something that has nothing to do with our social standing. Where giving money away gives us a different kind of wealth. Where a willingness to admit weakness 
is what it really means to be strong. Where there's universe, uh, unity in diversity, where serving is real gain, where love casts out all fear and grace. Second chances, third chances, four thousandth chances. Never, ever, ever running out. All upside down, all back to front, and life-changing and world-changing. Everything changes with this stuff. We don't believe that we just come to church to consume all this. We come to receive, receive love and the power that we need to fulfill our callings in the world, wherever you find yourself, in the political sphere, the creative sphere, in the realms of social action, community, education, finance, law, the arts, retail, admin. We also come to find our Elizabeths, the ones who are in this with us, to pursue this gold dust of relationship, this health, to say sorry, to forgive, to say you first, to model and practice this whole other way of living together. We come to be fixed up, filled, out, filled up and sent out. Knowing that we're chosen and that we carry on being chosen. Experiencing the gospel for ourselves, but knowing it's also on us to administer it for other people. And not to turn this into a seamless plug, but I'm gonna. If you bring your friends to the service next week, they absolutely will love all the Christmassy stuff. It's gonna be, it's gonna look really good. The music's gonna be great. It's gonna be a wonderful, joyous, Christmassy, lovely thing. But they will also hear the gospel. That they are loved, chosen, that they have a purpose in this life, that they can be free from the past, that they matter, that there's hope, and that Jesus is alive, that he's the one we're all searching for. How often do people actually get to hear that message? I don't think very often. Um, I'm going to invite the band back up now. Um, Do you happen to know We Three Kings of Orientar? I'll invite you to stand and you can either sing along or just whatever in a moment. I think just some of us for ourselves just need to hear about being chosen again this morning. In my most antagonistic moments of wrestling with the, these ideas of faith and call that we read about with Mary and Elizabeth here, I just can't think about how much easier it would be if messages always came via the mouth of an archangel. I mean, I, genuinely, I think it would be a lot easier for us to say, let it be to me as you have said, if we had actually heard what was being said or if we were sure that anything was being said at all. I think that the idea of God's plan for my life is something that so many of us wrestle with and so many of us struggle with, and it's messy and it's painful. And actually, I think one of the things that the Spirit wants to do this morning is just breathe 
air and love and life all around those questions and that pain. When Elizabeth says in verse 42, blessed are you among women, she's talking about Mary's faith, about what she's being told. To be blessed is to be filled with knowing what God says about us. But this is available in all circumstances, the highs and the lows, the knowing and the not knowing, the insane levels of holiday stress, and in the total peace of wearing your pajamas all day watching Star Wars. It's not circumstance-dependent. So if you want to stand, I think, let's just sing. <laughs>